This one is an open-hearted life. The version that was printed in UK is called Living with an Open Heart. And I always get them confused. Yeah. And some of my books, I can't even remember the titles of them when people ask me. So, you know, you win some and you lose. Okay. So uh, let's just have a few minutes of silence to return to our breath, let the mind settle down, and then we will talk about compassion and personal distress. What? Compassion and personal distress? Those two don't belong together in the same sentence. We'll check that out. Okay, so just let your breath be as it is. Observe what's happening as you inhale and exhale. Let's generate our motivation. And recall that when we talk about compassion, the wish for sentient beings to be free of misery, we're not just talking about ourselves. Self-compassion is a very big thing now. Uh, I see it a lot when I Google online. But here we're really trying to include all sentient beings. So not just focusing on ourselves, but realizing that we and all beings are the same in wanting happiness and not suffering. and in deserving happiness and not suffering. And so no matter who people are or even how they act towards us, we want to wish them to be free of misery. So let's have that motivation that acts as the foundation of our sharing the Dharma this morning.
So before I get into uh, this chapter, I want to uh, continue on a little bit from the motivation where we said no matter how people act towards us or who they are, we want them to be free of misery. This past week, the, uh, the jury was deciding on the, uh, what to have happen to the shooter at the Parkland, of the Parkland school shootings. And there was a big discussion because of the 12 jurors uh, to have a death penalty. All of them needed to, uh, to be to conclude the same thing. And three of them didn't. And the uh, some of the people who uh, did want the death penalty were on the jury, were very upset at the ones who didn't. Uh, and some of the uh, parents also were very upset. They were really thought that... Uh, you know the the teenager who uh, you know killed seventeen and attempted to kill another seventeen uh, deserved to be put to death, and uh, because of three people that wasn't going to happen. So I was thinking uh, about this because some years ago, one of the inmates I write to, uh, he was on the um, death row, and his uh, attorney, the, his last attorney, um, came out, and she was really trying very hard to make a case for clemency for him. And since I had been uh, corresponding with him, I knew him quite well, and she wanted me to kind of testify as she was um, doing this video to show the the board you know, the appeal board and probably the governor, although I don't know if the, how much the governor actually looks at the cases, you know. Um, so she was explaining to me, and I mean, from my side, I've always had a feeling that, uh, you know, as Gandhi said, if you have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, everybody's going to be blind and nobody's going to have teeth you know, because we've all made mistakes. And uh, and also, um, you know, doing to one person what they've done to another doesn't solve anything, you know. It doesn't, if you give the death penalty to somebody, it doesn't bring the loved ones back at all. So the attorney was... Uh, was explaining to me that in the prison system, the prosecutors, you know, um, they want to get a lot of convictions with the death penalty. That's supposed to be good, and that will, since many of them are elected, it will help them get reelected. But she said that her observation, and she's been to many executions because she's defended these people, and she's a public defender. And uh, she said that the death penalty does not alleviate the pain of the family of the victim 
at all. She said that the prosecutors convinced the family to really want the the death penalty, telling them it will it's justice, it will pay back the person who took the life of your loved one, and really you know convince the family of that because if the family speaks out a lot wanting the uh, death penalty that will influence the jury. And she said that the prosecutors do this, but at all the elections she's been to, um, she's seen that afterwards, uh, the family, it, it doesn't help their healing at all. You know, because after the execution, the prosecutor goes, good, you know, we got that guy, and then completely drops the family. The case is over. Nobody talks to the family anymore, you know, about this. And they're supposed to have healed from the loss of, of the person they loved. And they haven't. Yeah. So when I, I heard this, you know, when the jury delivered the, the verdict here, not the verdict, but the, well, the, I don't know what you call it, the punishment, the repercussions, the consequences uh, of what this kid did. You know, and I saw how angry people were, both the jury and some of the family members. It made me very sad because um, they really thought that taking the life of this mass shooter would heal the pain from losing those 17 kids. And, of course, it wasn't going to. Um, and I felt sad, too, because they were uh, so tied up in their anger, uh, not only towards the victim, but also now towards the, towards the jury members. And ang people are never happy when they're angry. Yeah. Anger is not uh, an emotion conducive to human happiness. Um, so it made me quite sad. I, I really wanted, you know, to kind of write to the to all of them and to the people who said no, give him, uh, you know, life without parole, and say, don't feel bad. You did the right thing, because. My experiences in dealing with people who are imprisoned is many of them, not everybody, but many of them, uh, really change their attitudes and come around while they're in prison. And one time when I was visiting San Quentin, I was giving a, a talk at San Quentin, and um, one of the guys who was, uh, he was a lifer, and he explained to me that the people who are lifers, um, they realize they're not getting out and that they have to make a, a life in the prison. And so they do their best to make a good life for themselves while they're in prison because they see that, you know, if they're acting out all the time and angry and so on, uh, they're going to wind up in the hole um, which is also called uh, ADSEG, administration se segregation, or solitary confinement. That's a general term. Um, 
And that's certainly no fun at all. And they commented that it's the young guys who have a a sentence of a certain number of years who are the rowdy ones because they're saying, oh, you know, I'm going to be in for eight years or 10 years, and then I'm going to be out on the streets again. And when I'm out on the streets, I'm going to do this and do that, the other thing. And their minds are in the future creating this life of how they're going to live once they're on the streets, whereas the lifers don't do that. They're, They're more dealing with the here and now. And I really saw that in the people who who came to attend that talk that I gave at at San Quentin because they were a mixture of lifers and and you know and people who were just in young guys for a short time and I just remember one of the young guys you know he kind of came in you know just. And the look was, okay, lady, you know, what are you going to tell me? I don't think you got anything good to say, but I'm here. And he plopped himself down and sat like this. So you know what this gesture means. I'm protecting myself. I am not open to anything. And he stretched his legs out, you know, apart in the, you know, Okay, lady, what do you have to say? (laughs) So I started speaking. And uh, I think I was speaking about anger or compassion or something, you know, along that line. And so as I'm talking, his body language changed. (laughs) Yeah? And you could tell the mind was changing. So that kind of change can happen when people are imprisoned, you know, when they hear something that rings true or that really meets their needs for how they are. So compassion, you know, when I said it in the motivation, everybody deserves, you know, happiness and not suffering. Some people go, oh, wait a minute, you know, that guy did this and this and that, you know, and the former president, oh, Um, it's, you know, that kind of mind stream basically makes us miserable as well as creates a lot of negativity, uh, negative karma, and we spew out negativity to other people. Yeah, because we think people have to deserve happiness. Now, I'm not sure, where did that idea come from, that we deserve happiness? Is that something from, uh, you know, Christianity, that you'll go to heaven if you play by all the rules, but if you don't, you'll go to hell? So you have to do something and play by the rules to, you know, go to heaven and be happy. Otherwise, you know, you're destined for hell and because something's really wrong with you. Is it coming from that? Or is it coming from our grade school experience where 
you know, if, if you get, uh, you know, all B's or all A's or all gold stars, then we'll go out for a hot fudge Sunday or you'll get a new Lego set where you have to perform in order to get some happiness. Yeah, we have that running all through our culture. Yeah, but Buddhism is saying no, you know, everybody wants happiness, nobody wants suffering. And if the people whose actions we are objecting to were happy, they wouldn't be doing the actions that we object to. Yeah. If people were really happy, they they don't go out killing and stealing and raping and lying and so on. You know, they don't wake up. If you're happy and content in your life, you don't wake up in the morning and say, sun is shining, you know, what a great day. I'm glad I'm alive. I think I'm going to go murder somebody. You know, if you're happy, you don't think like that. So clearly the people who are doing things, whether it's on a societal level or a personal level that harms us personally, um, to remember that they're suffering. And if they weren't unhappy, they would be acting and speaking and thinking in a very, very different way, you know. So it doesn't hurt to wish them happiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes we're, we're very hesitant to wish people to be happy. Again, you know, they have to earn it. Yeah. Of course, we have the get-out-of-jail-free card, and we deserve happiness all the time, no matter how we act. Yeah, But other people, there's a different standard for. Okay. So we here have, you know, yes, we have to have compassion for ourselves and not be so self-critical. But if compassion for self becomes... Um, uh, you know, self-indulgence and leaves out other people, then something's wrong. Yeah, it's it's very partial compassion. So it's uh, really a project that we have to work at, not just thinking about ourselves, but extending that wish for people to be free and animals and bugs to be free of suffering and have happiness. You know, we've got to have a big mind doing that. So that was the introduction. Now I'll do what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> okay. So this is uh, chapter 56 in An Open-Hearted Life, and its title is Compassion and Personal Distress. Okay, so this is a chapter that, that I've done. Um, some of the chapters Russell has done, some of them I did. So cultivating compassion begins with being moved by suffering. First, we become aware of our own suffering. Feeling that it is unbearable, we aspire to be free from it. Then... We don't just stay with our own suffering. Okay. 
Then we shift our focus to others and become aware of their suffering. That is sometimes hard to do. Yeah, when we're ill, when we're injured, when we're incredibly sad or upset about something, it is so difficult to think that other people also suffer. We're so consumed in our own misery. Is this ringing a bell or am I the only one who has this problem? Yeah, when I am suffering, that's all that occupies my mind. Okay, and and you know, of course, all the arguments like why should this happen to me? You know, why is this happening to me? Of course, when I'm happy, I never say why is this happening to me. You know, when I'm suffering, why do I deserve this? When I'm happy, happy, I never say why do I deserve this. You know. This is what I'm suffering. Oh, it shouldn't be like this. I want it to go away. Go away, go away, go away. And of course, you know, it doesn't. So then I cry harder because I'm suffering and nobody understands me and nobody's on my side and nobody understands how miserable I am. (gasps) Okay. Any of you have that? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, here, <laughs> if we see our own suffering, then to take the next step and really see that others are suffering too. Okay. Many of them in the same way that uh, that we are. Yeah. Before I had my hip replacement, uh, and if you ever need a hip replacement, you, you have some some experience of just a little bit of pain. Like it hurts like hell. But anyway, you know, I was able to go and and have a hip replacement that turned out wonderful. And, you know, the pain in that leg is no longer there. Of course, now I have pain in the other leg. But <laughs> Never mind, at least, you know, the pain in that leg is gone. But I started to think, you know, when I was, uh, you know, going through the, the, before the surgery, of people who live in rural areas in other countries, you know, I've traveled to India and Nepal and different places, who have no access to modern medicine. And so if they have this kind of pain and they need a hip replacement, there is no where to go to get it. And even if there is in the capital city, uh, you know, a hospital that can do this surgery, those people don't have the funds to afford it. And so for the rest of their lives, they live with this excruciating pain. Yeah. And then when I think about that, and then I think, you know, oh, yes, mine hurt. But, and yes, I had to wait a few months to get an appointment with the orthopedist, and I had to wait to get the surgery. But I got the surgery, you know. And how fortunate I am compared to people who this just, you know, took it would take over the whole rest of their lives. Yeah. So, 
you know, thinking when we're in pain, extending the mind to the pain of others, you know, starting with people who have the same problem, but then, because that resonates with us, but then we can expand that to all sorts of people who have all sorts of misery. Um, Okay. So realizing that others' suffering is no different from our own. Suffering is suffering no matter whose it is. We feel that it too is unbearable. Then we consider others' kindness to us and the fact that our lives depend on them. Feeling empathy and gratitude, we experience compassion and want them to be free from their suffering. Okay, so that's how we develop suffering. We we become of, aware of our own, yeah. And then we realize that others have have it too, and then we think about the kindness we've received from other living beings and will receive in the future from them. And then, you know, then their suffering really seems un, seems unbearable. Okay, now unbearable. When we hear that word, yeah, suffering is unbearable. What, you know, unbearable, I can't stand it, you know, and we get emotionally, this is unbearable, I can't stand it, it's got to change, it can't be like this, yeah, and because that's often the way we feel about our own misery, and when somebody we really care about deeply is suffering like that, we often feel the same way. Yeah. I can't bear to see them suffer. Yeah. And what happens at that point is we often, the word, I can't bear to see them suffer, becomes internal um, anger at the situation personal distress. I can't bear to see them suffer. So with compassion, the focus is on the person who's suffering. But when I suffer because I see others suffer, and I become depressed and uh, or panicked or whatever, then the focus now has become on me my misery at seeing them suffer. Okay? So I I can't bear to see them suffer is no longer completely compassion that wants to alleviate their misery. It is internal pain that wants their misery to be removed so that my pain at seeing them suffer goes away. Is this making some sense to you? Yeah? Have you had that happen? And so sometimes it it comes out as, you know, Aunt Ethel had a heart attack. She's in the hospital and you love Aunt Ethel, and you, you know, but you don't want to go see her. There's resistance to go visiting her in the hospital. Yeah, there's fear. I don't want to see her suffering. Yeah. And the fear could be 
because if I see Aunt Ethel's suffering, it reminds me that I am capable of the same thing. And I do not want to think about that. I want to deny the possibility of my own suffering, deny what samsara is. And also, I care about her, and I don't want to see her like that. And it's distressing, and it's scary. Yeah. And I'm uncomfortable, so I'd rather not go in the hospital to see Aunt Ethel. I'll send her flowers. Yeah. And, and hope that communicates my affection for her. But that when we have that response, it's an interesting time to stop it and really say, why am what's behind my resistance to going to visit her in the hospital? Yeah? Is it fear that I might experience something like that? Is it just disgust at anybody experiencing that? Is it distaste because it makes me uncomfortable? Yeah. So can I look at others' suffering really focused on their experience without um, changing the focus to, to my uncomfortable response. Yeah. So some people hesitate to cultivate compassion, thinking that it will only bring them more suffering and that they already have more than enough suffering. Okay. So I don't want to go see, you know, Aunt Ethel in the hospital. I don't want to go see Uncle Morris in the hospital. It's just too distressing for me. Okay. So we're afraid that that recognizing others' suffering will bring us more suffering. However, when we choose to look at others' suffering and cultivate compassion, our experience is very different from what we normally feel when encountering others' misery. Cultivating compassion is done voluntarily and for a specific person purpose. Okay, so it's not just like our emotional reaction to seeing people suffer. suffer. We're really, we want to develop compassion, okay? Because we know it's a good quality to have and it'll help us help other people, okay? So using reasoned consideration to understand others' situation, we come to experience an emotion that we see as beneficial and want to have. So sometimes, you know, our fear of others' suffering, our fear of personal distress, makes us stick our head in the sand and we don't want to see anything, you know. Don't tell me about it. Yeah. I, I, I come from a very interesting family. Uh, my mother actually told me at one time that if I, you know, got severely ill or an accident, she doesn't want to hear because it would be too suffer, too much misery for her. You know, 
okay, mom, I won't tell you. I, I wasn't planning on telling her anyway because I know, you know, her, her reactions. Um, but it, it was interesting for somebody to say, you know, if you're suffering a lot, I don't want to hear because it's too distressing for her. And she'd rather, you know, keep her head in the sand. And, you know, when we hear about situations, when we really think, for example, what's going on in Ukraine, you know, and not just the death of the Ukrainians, but the death of these Russian kids that are going to war too. Yeah. And how they're all forced by the social conventions and the the society, you know, of war and defending your country, uh, that they have to go out and and have a mind that wants to kill other people who they don't know, but who they have to consider as enemies. You know, uh, war is one of the most stupid things I've ever heard of. It doesn't solve any problems, you know. And yet throughout history, this is what people have done to solve conflicts. Yeah. Is let's go kill each other. And whoever survives is the winner. Stupid. Don't you think it's stupid? I think it's just totally stupid, you know? And if we want to have war, why don't we put the leaders in a sandbox and a playground and let them throw sand at each other, you know? and leave the rest of us out of it, you know? Because most people, you know, they're, they don't want to go kill and fight other people, you know? And the leaders are always staying safe in their own palaces. Okay. This is, sorry, I get off on my soapboxes once in a while, and war is one of my soapboxes. Okay, so cult, uh, where are we? Okay, so we come to experience an emotion that we see as beneficial and want to have. That's when we voluntarily uh, cultivate compassion and really look at people's uh, suffering with a clear mind. So this is very a, a very different experience from having a sudden emotional outburst that can't bear another's misery. In the latter case, we feel overwhelmed by a sense of distress that we do not want. However, with compassion, we are overcome with an emotion that we do want. Okay. So it is often said that holy beings are bound by compassion to those who are suffering. Yeah, I remember helping one of my teachers translate a prayer to Chenrezig, and and the prayer was talking about how Chenrezig, Buddha of compassion at the top there, um, how he he um, can't bear to see others suffering and is bound by, you know, by compassion to sentient beings. 
And I was thinking, wait, because I didn't understand the difference between actual compassion and personal distress. I was thinking, wow, that sounds like us ordinary beings. And Chenrezig is, is, he's a bodhisattva, he's a Buddha. He shouldn't be feeling like that. And then I, you know, uh, my teacher explained when they say sen- uh, the, the Buddhas are attached to sentient beings, it doesn't mean our attachment, you know, or when they're bound by seeing their suffering. It doesn't mean, you know, like you're imprisoned by it. But rather their hearts are so big that they don't shy away from it. And when they see the suffering of sentient beings, their response is not fear. Yeah, it's not like this is too much, get away. It was, it is, what can I do to help? You know, and I think that's remarkable. Yeah, because I guess because it's so much different when when I see people suffering. You know, sometimes I people see, see people suffering, and it's like, get over it already. Stop complaining. You know, if, if people really have a good reason for suffering, okay, sure. But when I think people are feeling sorry for themselves, ugh, it's like you know, come on, don't play that game. I have no compassion for them. Okay, some of you know that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, you know, I'll rationalize that. That that's tough love, you know. Yeah, don't throw, you know, don't give me your self pity trip. And why do I do that? Because I know the self pity trip extremely well. I have cultivated it to perfection. Yeah, so when I see somebody going in that direction. Oh, it just bugs me. <laughs> because I do it. Okay. So, uh, however, the bondage of the holy beings is one that they choose and honor. In fact, rather than being burdened by compassion, they find freedom. They are no longer imprisoned by selfish concern. Think about that for a minute, you know, how imprisoned we are by self-concern, how we blow up, you know, to infinite proportions, anything that concerns ourself. And when we can really be free from that self-concern, you know, that that self-obsession, uh, yeah, then there's peace in our own hearts and then there's space to really care about others and have compassion for them. When our compassion is still weak, it may easily slip into personal distress. Okay, so pers- personal distress is the close enemy of compassion. Okay, in entry 35, we, we I think we talked about chapter 35 in the book, the close uh, enemies of different things. So personal distress looks like compassion, but it is the close enemy because it isn't compassion. Okay. So, you know, different uh, 
uh, attachment is the close enemy to love because it has fondness for the other person, but it's not love because there's strings attached. Okay, so things that look like a good emotion but ha- are actually have some corruption in them. Okay, so genuine compassion focuses on the person who is suffering and wishes them to be free of suffering and its causes. Personal distress, on the other hand, focuses on our pain at witnessing another's suffering. With personal distress, we can't bear to see their suffering because we hurt when seeing it. Personal distress clouds our minds and may lead us to feeling so much sadness that we become unable to act to help others. Yeah, and I've seen this happen many times. Um, One time when I was living in Singapore, a family uh, called me and they said, our relative is is dying, please come over and, and, you know, talk to him. And so I went over and, uh, you know, the, the family what, opened the door and you enter into the living room and the family's sitting there. And the, the patient who's dying is back in the back bedroom. But the family wanted to talk to me because they were in so much distress. So I wound up talking to the family for about an hour you know, and then I only had a short, a shorter time to go into the back bedroom to talk to the person who was actually dying because the family was in so much distress that, you know, I was quite happy to help them. Yeah. But what I saw was when other people are distressed because a dear one is, is dying, you know, it blocked the help getting, you know, I couldn't spend as much time with the person who was dying. Yeah. Some years ago, when during one of your courses, Geshe-la, um, somebody was dying in uh, Idaho. And so some of us went over to talk to him. And he was actually a, one of the former inmates that I had corresponded with. And uh, it was very different there. You know, the family was... Uh, they weren't, of course, they were. They were not happy that he was dying, but um, they they wanted us to go talk to him. So it was a completely different thing. We went in, we talked to him for quite a long time, you know, and then afterwards we were able to give the the family some, you know, some advice and so on. Um, but a very very different experience. Mm-hmm. So the evolution of personal distress begins with seeing another person's suffering as so bad that nothing can be done to change it, okay? So often when we think of our own suffering or another's suffering, there's this feeling that the suffering is permanent. It's everlasting. There's nothing that will change it. Yeah. And especially if somebody is terminally ill, you know, it's like, okay, that they have the death sentence and there's there's nothing that, you know, can change, can change that. 
they're upset by dying. I'm upset because they're up, they're dying, you know. Okay, so then feeling their suffering as hopelessly unbearable, we uh, our attention turns to our pain at witnessing their misery. Okay, we lose the ability to discern what is our responsibility and what is theirs. What is their suffering and what is our suffering? Okay, we feel guilty seeing another person suffer and think we should be able to do something about it. Yeah, do you feel that sometimes when somebody you care about is upset about something and you want to help them, but you can't think of anything to do, and then you feel guilty. Yeah, like, I should be able to do something to change this, when in actual fact, we have no power to change it. Yeah. We may make, make something better, but we can't certainly change it. For example, when uh, often when people suicide, the family feels very guilty. You know, we should have been able to prevent this person from suiciding. It's our fault. We didn't love them enough. We didn't do this for them. We did that to them, which we shouldn't have, and we should have done this. And the family goes through endless self-torture, thinking that they should have been able to present, prevent the suicide. Okay, and suicide definitely is a tragedy, but it's a choice that the other person made. Yeah, it's their choice, and we cannot control what other people choose. We can try and influence, we can try and help, but we cannot crawl into their minds and pull switches and make them think differently than they do, yeah? And so accepting that powerlessness, you know, and accepting that it was somebody else's choice is very difficult, yeah? But thinking that we should be all-powerful is equally as ridiculous, yeah? that we should be able to prevent that? Yeah. We can't even control our own mind, let alone control other people's decisions. Yeah. So it's difficult, but people really have to separate, you know, what is their decision and what is my decision, and not hold ourselves responsible for things that we are not responsible for. Yeah. I know that families who hear this, who are suicide, going, no, you don't understand. Actually, we should have been able to do so. What? You know, you love them. You did your best. What do you mean you should have been able to do something? If you had the power, you would have done it. Yeah. Okay. So we feel guilty seeing another person suffer and think we should be able to do something about it. Not knowing what to do to relieve their suffering, we then become distressed. 
Yeah. We may become angry at the situation or even at the other person who's suffering or at the public policy or the institution or the event that contributed to others' suffering. Somebody is in an accident and we get mad at whoever, you know, there was somebody uh, in a car accident and we get mad at the driver who was intoxicated or who, you know, was looking at their cell phone when they were driving. Okay, we get mad at them, yeah. And so, or we get mad at, you know, why is there... Um, uh, the death penalty. It shouldn't be like this. We, you know, and so anger can drive activism. Yeah. But something isn't right. Yeah. You know, it's playing into an us and them thing when we get angry. Mm -hmm. At a complete loss for any practical remedy to help this other person, we may stew in depression. Yeah, so that often happens when a spouse dies, a child dies, you know. You don't have any control, but you think you should have. But we don't. Instead of our helping others, they now have to help us because we're depressed. Okay? And so I, you know, you see this very, very often. How do we counteract this unhelpful personal distress? So um, people may hear this as me saying, you should not be personal, have personal distress. You're wrong. You're bad. You shouldn't feel that way. Now, I am not saying that. Yeah, you can listen to the tape again. I'm not saying that. You know, what I'm saying is that if we have it, we have a choice. Do we want to feel the personal distress and let ourselves spin around and, you know, get really depressed? Or do we want to tried to see the situation in another way, yeah, and cultivate compassion for the other person. Okay, so how do we counteract this unhelpful personal distress? Remembering that we cannot control everything that happens in the world helps us to identify, to accept the reality of situations that we don't like. Yeah, so accepting our lack of control. Although we aren't able to undo the complex network of conditions that brought about others' misery, we can think creatively about what we can do to lessen their suffering, make it more tolerable, or to reverse its course. Recalling that misery is impermanent by nature in other words, it cannot and will not remain the same, helps us to put suffering in a realistic perspective. Mm -hmm. 
So doing the taking and giving meditation, where we imagine taking others' suffering, giving them our happiness, doing that is also beneficial, as is remembering the meaning of actual compassion and bringing our mind back to that experience. We may have learned a number of other effective strategies that help us tolerate distress in our lives. Yeah, and the key is to remember them and use them when you need them. Because we've all heard lots of uh, teachings about how to handle these, but in the actual situation, the mind goes blank. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting because... Uh, we do sometimes courses on death and dying, and we talk about this and how to handle it. But the moment somebody is uh, a relative or a dear one is dying, then those people who have heard the teachings uh, call us up and say, "What do I do?" You know, because at that moment, yeah, the personal distress is so overpowering that they can't remember the antidotes. So the key is really to apply the antidotes and think about these things first. Yeah, when your mind is, uh, you know, not in the middle of the situation to develop familiarity with thinking like that. So with compassion, we can see situations more clearly and respond in a helpful manner. And when I, I think about the the compassion of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, you know, who are bound to sentient beings uh, by their compassion. They don't get depressed. Yeah, when they see the condition of the world, they don't get depressed. Rather, they get energized, you know, to progress along the path. The Bodhisattvas, you know, really reaffirm their wish to become fully awakened so they can be of the best uh, benefit to others. And also they have the wisdom that knows that misery, that suffering has causes, and those causes can be eliminated. They may not be able to be eliminated right now, And in some conditions, not even in this lifetime, but the chief causes of samsara, ignorance, craving, and so forth, those can be eliminated. So when bodhisattvas see the situation of sentient beings in cyclic existence, they don't get depressed because they know that those causes can be eliminated. Rather, they get energized to be able to uh, help other sentient beings see what those causes are, learn the antidotes to them, and apply those antidotes. Yeah. Because, you know, bodhisattvas, you know, they don't get depressed like we get depressed. because they have this wisdom that understands the situation quite deeply. Okay, so not falling into personal distress, we can assess the situation accurately 
seeing what needs to be done, what we are capable of doing, and what the other person is capable of accepting when someone else may be better suited to offer help. Okay, so sometimes we do know what needs to be done, but other people say, forget it, I don't want your help. Yeah, and you can often see this if you have a a dear one who is, um, you know, has a substance abuse problem, and you know that going to rehab would be really beneficial, but they deny their problem, and they say, I don't have a problem, I don't need to go to rehab, Mind, mind your own business. Yeah? So again, a situation here, we may know something that can help them, but they don't want the help at that moment. Okay, so we can, if we think, oh, they don't want my help forever and ever and ever, then we get depressed. But if we think, they don't want my help at this moment, but I said that and I planted a seed in their mind, and at some later time, when they have hit bottom, then they may want to go to rehab, and they'll remember my suggestion and come to me at that moment, and then I can take them. Okay? So do you see how our mind, when we want to do something immediately to change the circumstance, and the other person's not ex- uh, ripe, and we have to accept that, you know? But we plant the seed, and then later, maybe they'll come around. Okay. And, uh, and sometimes uh, we know what needs to be done, but we're not the right person to offer help. Okay, an example here is parents uh, who refer their teenagers to other wise adults when the teenagers have problems. Because as parents, you love your kids dearly, but when they go through teenage years, you can't tell them much. Okay, not not all teenagers, but, you know, many of us. Um, but if you've um, made it so when your children are going up, they have relationships with other adults who have a lot of wisdom, who they trust. Then when they're teenagers and they're in crisis and so on, uh, they may go to those other adults and they can hear those other adults, whereas they can't hear what their parents are saying. Yeah. Any of you like that when you were teenagers? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, admit it. <laughs> yeah. So um, parents have tremendous compassion for their children, but they may not be the right people to help their own children at that time. The teenagers may be more open to the counsel of other adults. Being able to step back and let this happen is an act of kindness on the parents' part. 
Okay. For this reason, it's helpful if parents enable their children to form close connections with wise adults when they're very young. Okay. Then when they become teenagers, there are other adults they can go to for advice if they feel uncomfortable asking their parents or if the problematic situation involves their parents. Okay, so that's a, a really good way to to work with kids, yeah. So that they have a variety of people that they, who you know are wise, who they can trust and seek out. Otherwise, they go to their friends, yeah. And their friends are, you know, in seventh grade just like them. And, you know, I know in seventh grade we are almost omniscient, but... Um, you know, maybe not. <laughs> so it takes a lot of courage and fortitude to be compassionate. Okay, compassion is not for wimps. Some people think compassion, you know, makes you weak, it makes you sentimental, you're crying all the time with compassion. You know, or you're meddling in other people's business. Yeah, compassion is none of those. You know, you need a very clear mind and a lot of inner strength to have compassion. We have to be able to bear seeing others suffering, even though it is unbearable. Okay. We have to be able to maintain a strong wish that they uh, not suffer, even in situations where we can do little to change it. It is necessary to have a strong and stable mind that can remember our foremost aim is to benefit others. Okay, and so here's the reflection for that. There is great suffering in our world, and sometimes witnessing it leads us to feel helpless and hopeless, which impacts our ability to be compassionate. We just say, the world is screwed up. What can you do? You know, oh, well, the only thing I can do is I'm just going to go out and have a good time myself because I can't control anything. So drink, drug, sex, whatever you want, just you know, look for our own happiness uh, because we don't like feeling helpless and hopeless. Mm -hmm. Okay, so are these situations in which you feel immobilized by personal distress? You know, when we tune out, when we stick our head in the sand? If so, give yourself some empathy and compassion. How might you help yourself feel safe so that you can then extend your compassion to others. So if other suffering scares you, how can you create some feeling of safety for yourself? Yeah. Maybe one way is to realize, oh, I'm not experiencing that right now. Or one way I find uh, to give myself a sense of safety often involves imagining giving to what the people who are suffering what they need. And just that fact of imagining, this is the taking and giving meditation, giving them what they need 
and imagining them, you know, uh, their suffering be uh, is solved. I find that that helps me calm down, you know, and feel safe. How might you view this situation in a way that allows you to be compassionate and not be overcome by your distress? These are the questions we need to think about. You might start by acknowledging that while you cannot control the situation, you can do something to help. We may not be able to control somebody's death, but we can be there with them if they want people to be there with them, or we can leave them alone if they would rather die alone, you know? We can see what it is that they feel and act accordingly. Or you may try shifting your attention away from the troubling situation, balancing your own emotions, and then coming back to help. Yeah, I had a, a situation happen during um, during COVID at some, I can't remember, COVID is just kind of this historical blur in my mind. I, I can't remember what year things happened. Yeah. But I was, um, there was somebody who was in contact with me who was suicidal. And so I spent a lot of time uh, writing emails back and forth. She was on the other side of the country and, uh, you know, talking to her and, you know, and sometimes um, online conversations. And this went on for months and months and months, um, really trying to help her see uh, see the benefit of being alive and to see her own potential. And she was definitely having, there was some mental illness involved because she was uh, seeing things that weren't happening and then getting very distressed from them by them. And then uh, one one day I got the phone call that, yeah, she did suicide. So it was at first, you know, distressing because here's a human life and she had potential, you know. And she was even a Dharma student, um, but, it, you know, the, it couldn't get through. Um, but then, okay, I... You know, I was sad that that happened. But then we do prayers and practices for people who die. And so I turned my mind to doing that. And when I did that, you know, okay, this is, you know, I can't go in the bardo and change her experience. I can't make her live again and change what she did. Uh, but I can make prayers for her and and hope to direct her own mental energy in a good way. And so doing that, you know, that's all I, I could do. Yeah. Okay. So that's the chapter on compassion and personal distress. Um, maybe we have time for a few questions. Uh, this makes me think of a, a coping mechanism that I and a lot of my friends are using lately, which is um, controlling our exposure to the news because mm. of the distress. Yeah. And it makes me wonder if 
instead we should be like trying to stretch ourselves to stay in that mind of compassion rather than personal distress mm. or if there is wisdom in limiting exposure. yeah yeah if you don't have a way to handle your personal distress uh then avoiding the news you know can work uh, but also watch it, watching the news and uh, depending on what the situation is, knowing that the media does, ex you know, exaggerate, not exaggerate, but they, knowing that we're seeing, like if, if you're seeing the news of what's happening in Ukraine, okay, yes, that suffering is very real. But you'll also find stories of people helping each other that are so moving and so to remember, you may see the suffering and the stories on that are really emphasized, but there's also a lot of kindness going on too. So to remember both sides of it, yeah. Or if you watch the news, what, what I do is, uh, to me, it's, it's a big lesson about karma, you know, and the karma people are creating now, which will bring experiences in the future, uh, the karma uh, that people created in the past that's having them suffer right now, watching how people make decisions about what to do in, in the case. You know, there, I have friends in Russia and I have friends in Ukraine and watching their decisions, and some of them I agree with and some of them I don't. You know, I have one one friend, and it's like, please leave. You need to leave. And Venable um, Sumton and I, you know, we have pleaded, we have emailed, we have had Zoom conversations, you know, um, but... Uh, you know, that's the situation, and and we have to accept it, you know, but to help in the way that we can. Yeah. And maybe sometime he'll get it that he needs to leave, and all we can do is hope that we can help him at that time. You know, who knows, because as rules and regulations happen, it's more and more difficult to help people who want to leave. Yeah. Okay, other... So it's up to you, yeah. You have to balance. I think it's really an exercise in wisdom of how much we expose ourselves to the news, you know, and we shouldn't feel like, I have to see all of it and know everything because that's reality. It's part of what's happening in the world, but there's a whole lot else going on. Yeah. And uh, so to know what do I need to know and what, you know, is not helpful for me at this moment. Does that help? Other questions? Okay, then let's dedicate the merit.